Good morning. I'm happy to be able to have the opportunity to speak to you this morning about some of the feelings I have about a subject that we're studying now at the Richland Hills Church of Christ. The elders and the preacher have asked us to study whether or not the use of instrumental music in the praise of God is acceptable to God. And to study that with an open heart, looking to see if we understand what the Word of God teaches and not what the tradition of man teaches. If what Rick teaches is right, it is right not because Rick teaches it, because it is the Word of God. As background, let me tell you that I have listened to Rick preach for 17 years, and I must confess that I have never found his equal in his respect for the Word of God and in his courageous proclamation of it. Rick does his homework, and he preaches the Word in season and out of season. It seems to me that the very least that the elders could ask us to do would be to study with an open heart the Word of God and make sure that our conviction is based upon that Word and not upon the tradition of men. I want you to be open to the Word and the possibility that you could learn something from this study even though we have studied it for years. I know I have. Thank you very much, and God bless you. I said last Sunday uh, that I've never been prouder of this church than I've been the last few weeks, and that opinion has not waned. Um, For over several decades, this church has heard a gospel of grace, and I've always believed that whenever you had the opportunity to put grace into practice, you would do so. And you have, and you are again. Because we're simply now living out the implications of the gospel that we've been preaching here for a long, long time. I must also say that I'm encouraged by the feedback I'm getting from other churches around the country. It's been overwhelmingly positive, because I believe churches of Christ across this country are ready for a revival of grace, and I'm encouraged by that. I'm going to share with you now in this session a lesson that I knew years ago I was going to have to teach if I was going to have any integrity at all. I was going to have to teach this lesson whether or not we ever had plans to launch a service that would involve instrumental music. Let me tell you the day that I knew I was going to have to teach this lesson. It may shock you, but it happened about 10 years ago. And it happened right here in this room, right behind this pulpit. Some of you who have been here for a number of years remember that back in the 90s, in fact, back in the mid or early 90s, I taught a series of sermons on the book of Galatians. And I learned a lesson. Boy, if you, don't ever preach a series when a rabbi's mad unless you want to do some hard work. Because Paul was one mad rabbi. You remember in chapter 2, he talks about confronting Peter to his face for his hypocrisy. If you remember the context, Peter was willing to eat with Gentiles and enjoy table fellowship as long as Jews weren't present. But when Jews were present, he refrained from table fellowship with Gentiles. Now, he wasn't saying Gentiles aren't Christians. He was just saying this is a tradition that would cause a lot of unrest in the church. Remember, Peter's the one who had the whole vision on the roof of the animals coming down. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. Peter doesn't wonder, can Gentiles be Christians? So why would he do something like that? I'm sure he would have argued, you know, I know it's not wrong But these Jews just aren't ready for it. It's their tradition, and and it would cause unrest in the body. And so I think it's best just not to do it. And Paul confronted him to his face. Now, does that mean all Christians have to agree on all things? Of course not. There's a lot of things we disagree on that you can just let ride. But when you let people believe something's wrong that is not wrong, 
to the point that it is dividing fellowship in the body, it has to be confronted. So I'm preaching about how wrong it is to case silent on things that people think are wrong that aren't wrong and disrupting the unity of the body by your silence. And I'm preaching away on that. And right there at that spot, about 1994, the Holy Spirit said to me in the middle of my sermon, and that's what you and all the preachers like you were doing, who haven't for years believed that the worship of God with instruments is wrong. But you continue by your silence to let people think it's wrong, to allow the body to be disrupted, and you do so under the plea, well, we're just maintaining peace. But that's not peace. That's cowardice. I knew then the day would come. I'd have to teach this lesson. When I was young... I believe, and I was taught, that if you were content just to let the Bible be the final authority, you would of necessity adopt the anti-instrument position. And the implication was clear. Anybody that would just read their Bible honestly and objectively would conclude, as we did, that instrumental music was sinful. I realize now that that conclusion was simplistic, and it was judgmental, it was arrogant, and it was divisive. Because the truth is, almost no one reading the Bible sincerely for the first time would ever conclude that instrumental praise is unacceptable to God. And that statement is so strong, I need to say it again. I contend you give this Bible to any sincere person with no preconceived conditions and say, just read it and find out what God wants of you. That no one just reading this Bible would conclude that instrumental praise is unacceptable to God. I'll tell you what else I've learned. As I have met thousands of believers who worship with instruments None of them do so because they don't want to follow the Bible. They want to follow the Bible and their view of the Bible is every bit as high as my own. And in my experience, most members of churches of Christ know this is true. And in their hearts, they don't have trouble with instrumental music anymore. It's just that nobody has spoken to their heads. And for several decades now, there's this giant elephant that's been in the room. And we don't talk about it. And we claim it's so that we can protect peace. But it's peace at the cost of the unity of the body. So I hope today to speak to the heart and to the head in this study by going straight to the Word of God And as we begin, and I think our brother Bill challenged us well, I want to remind you of a statement I saw in the Bible, at the front of the Bible of my youth minister over 30 years ago. And it still convicts me to this day. It was a simple question. Is it truth that drives me? Or is it fear that I've been wrong for so long? Well, let's begin. I want to start with Old Testament reasons for accepting instrumental music. In the Old Testament, here's reason number one, God did not just allow instrumental music, he commanded it. He didn't just allow it, he commanded it. Worshiping God with instruments was a matter of obedience in the Old Testament. Look with me at Second Chronicles 7 and verse 6. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments which King David had made for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Now, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights as we've studied the life of Solomon, you'll remember the lesson where we talked about the dedication of the temple, where David says specifically in 1 Chronicles 28, verses 12 and 19, that the details of the temple were inspired by the Spirit of God, that the hand of the Lord was on him when he gave to Solomon the details for the division of the priest, for the, for the dimensions of the temple, and for the prescribed worship details. 
Look with me at 2 Chronicles 29. It says, He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan, the prophet. This was commanded by the Lord through his prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. Now, the focus of Old Testament worship was not on instruments. The focus was on God, but instrumental music was used and even ordered by God to help focus worship on Him. When they dedicated the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13, we read, The trumpeters and singers joined in unison. Notice this phrase. As with one voice. The trumpeters and the singers were one voice to God. And they gave praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by the trumpet, cymbals, and other instruments. They raised their voices and praised to the Lord. And they sang, He is good, His love endures forever. By the way, did you know that there are over 20 kinds of musical instruments mentioned in the Old Testament with which you can praise God? You know that the Psalms are full of these illusions. Psalm 33, 1 through 3. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It's fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make music to Him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully, and shout for joy. Psalm 92 says, It's good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. You find these kinds of verses all through the Psalms. And I want you to notice that instrumental music in the Psalms is not an aid to worship. It is worship itself. We'll come back to that later psalm 150 the final psalm the the conclusion of the entire psalter reads like this praise the lord praise god in his sanctuary praise him in his mighty heavens praise him for his acts of power praise him for his surpassing greatness praise him with the sounding of the trumpet praise him with the harp and lyre praise him with tambourine and dancing praise him with the strings and flute Praise Him with the clashing cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now remember, these are the very psalms we are commanded in the New Testament to read and to sing. Now doesn't it seem odd to you? The Holy Spirit would command us to sing psalms we are forbidden to practice. Look one more psalm with me. Number 81. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music. Strike the tambourine. Play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon. And when the moon is full on the day of our feast. This is a decree for Israel. An ordinance of the God of Jacob. He established it as a statute for Joseph. When he went out against Egypt. Where we heard a language we did not understand. What's important about that psalm? Please note, God commanded instrumental praise before the law was given. If you go back to the Exodus story, chapter 15, verse 20, when they crossed the Red Sea, Miriam and the girls got out their tambourines and they praised the Lord with voice and with instruments before the law. That's important because some people, and I think they misuse the verse that says the law has been nailed to the cross and we don't have to do what the law says anymore. They love to use that when you talk about tithing, failing to remember that tithing existed in the book of Genesis before the law, and so did instrumental praise. Now, with all of that as a background, I cannot understand statements like I'm about to read. Last summer, before last, I spent three days in Abilene in the library reading everything I could read on this subject. I let every side have their best shot at me. I read debates that were 100 years old. I read everything the anti-instrument position has produced. I came across this statement by one of their most virulent defenders. Regarding instrumental music in the Old Testament, he writes, God tolerated it as he did David's polygamy and the rebellious kingdom, but he approved of neither. And so the way he gets around the fact that there's instrumental praise all over the Old Testament is to say it's kind of like David's polygamy. God tolerated it, but he hated it. And I have to ask you, is that standing under the Word of God or over the Word of God? How on earth can you reach a conclusion God was not pleased with what he ordered and commanded? In the Old Testament, 
God didn't just allow instrumental praise. He ordered it. Second thing, in the Old Testament, God blessed instrumental music. We saw already the singers and the players with one voice lifting praise to God at the dedication of the temple. Look at the rest of that passage check in Chronicles chapter 5. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. God was pleased with the praise that they was offered that day. Let me make another strong statement. There is no hint in the entire Bible that God was ever anything but pleased by instrumental praise offered from sincere hearts. Now, you do have texts like Amos 6 where, where the prophet says you sit on your fine couches and you cover yourself with loyals and you eat your fattened calf and you pluck your instruments like David. And he's condemning their self-indulgence and the fact that they aren't burdened over the sin of Judah. And that's why they went into exile. You do find places in the Old Testament where God condemns fasting. He condemns Sabbath. He condemns any ritual or any act of worship that's done unsincerely. But there is not a hint anywhere in the Bible that God was ever anything but pleased by instrumental praise offered from a sincere heart. By the way, remember that God declared a musician to be a man after his own heart. And then one last point from the Old Testament. Messianic prophecy anticipated instrumental music would continue in the coming kingdom. Look with me at Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, that psalm is probably a wedding song uh, celebrating the marriage of a king of Israel to his bride. And yet, the Spirit guides the Hebrew author in chapter 1 to take that passage and refer it to Christ because he quotes that exact passage in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Look at the next verse from that psalm. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. And so the Spirit takes this metaphor of this king about to be married and applies it to the coming Messiah. Certainly the people who knew that psalm well could not possibly imagine that the Messiah was not glad by the praise of instruments as the king was. But even more convicting, I think, is Romans chapter 15. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Gentiles on behalf of God's truth. To confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name now the problem there is there's several places in the psalms where you have a a verse like that most likely david is quoting psalm 1849 or psalm 57 verse 9 and in both of those psalms the hebrew word there for sing hymns to your name is the hebrew word zamar you won't find a lexicon anywhere that fails to include instruments in defining what the word zamar meant So Paul says, here's the prophecy that in the Messianic age, the Gentiles are going to zamar to your name. Just to be sure what that word means, look at Psalm 57 where Paul is quoting that verse, 7 through 9. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul, awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among nations the peoples and so what have we learned in the old testament god commands instrumental praise god blesses instrumental praise and god prophesies its use in the messianic age now if god's attitude toward instrumental music changed in the new testament 
you would expect one of the following three things. A clear passage condemning its use. A clear passage commanding a cappella praise only. Or a prophecy announcing the end of instrumental music. Is that what we find in the New Testament? Let's turn now to the New Testament and talk about reasons for accepting instrumental praise. Number one, Jesus never deals with the issue. The anti-instrument advocates must speak where Jesus has not spoken. He did speak much about the role of sincere heart and worship, but he never addressed the issue of music once. And you would think he would if this was worth splitting his church over. Now, it is interesting In the great parable of the prodigal son, you'll recall at the end, the elder brother's in the field and he's angry. And he says, they were making music. The word there is symphonos. It's where we get our word symphony. It's only used in the Old Testament Septuagint. It's in Daniel where you have that story about whenever all the instruments are blown, you're supposed to bow down and worship the king. The word meant band. And so in this powerful metaphor of a prodigal who's come back to the people of God, who's back in the house of God, Jesus says they were having a party and there was a band. You'd have a hard time, based on what Jesus said, arguing he had a problem with instrumental praise. We know that Jesus taught regularly in the temple in the presence of instrumental praise. And you'll note he did not cast out the musicians with the money changers. (laughs) Second point. Instrumental music is a non-issue in the book of Acts. Now again, we do know that the early disciples met daily in the temple courts. Apparently, they could worship in spirit and truth in the presence of instrumental music. But nowhere in Acts is a pattern for musical praise specified. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament is congregational singing specifically authorized. Uh, You heard me. Let me say that again. Nowhere in the New Testament is congregational singing specifically authorized. And you're thinking, well, I know there are verses in the New Testament telling us to sing. Let's look at those. That's point number three. New Testament commands to sing. Neither prescribe nor prohibit instrumental music. The issue is never the presence or absence of instrumental music. It's the presence or the absence of the spirit-filled heart. Let's look at those verses. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says, Be filled with the Spirit and speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Colossians three sixteen says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And James 5.13 says, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now let's make several observations about these important verses. First, I want you to notice all these references to singing in the New Testament are speaking to the individual. They all clearly address the Christian's daily walk and his relationship to other believers, the corporate assembly is not the context for any of those three verses. In Ephesians, go and read it. The first three chapters, he talks about our riches in Christ. He starts chapter 4. Therefore, in lieu of all this, let's walk a walk that's worthy. And he starts to describe that walk. I want you to uh, keep the unity of the Spirit. I don't want you to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I want you to put on the new mind and get rid of the old mind. I want you to stop lying. I want you to stop stealing. I want you to stop being bitter. I want you to forgive each other. I want you to stop quenching the spirit. I don't want there to be a hint of sexual immorality in your life. I want you to walk in light and be holy. I want you to be filled with the spirit. I want you husbands to love your wives and you wives to love your husbands and you parents to honor your kids and you kids to honor your parents. And that whole context is about daily living. Same thing is true in Colossians 3 because it's almost the exact same flow and pattern. You get to James 5. What's he talking about? Are you sick? Call on the elders. Are you troubled? Pray. Are you happy? Sing a song. He's not talking about the assembly. He's talking about daily living. 
Here's the irony. There's only one reference I know of in the entire New Testament to music in the assembly. It's in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when he says one person comes with a hymn, one comes with an interpretation, one with a word of knowledge, one with a, a prophecy. He says, get it together there. Have it done decent and in order because your services are chaotic. Now, here's the point. The only reference to music in the assembly in the New Testament is talking about solos. About someone's got a song he wants to sing. The Lord's given him a song. He wants to share it. Someone else wants to share a word of revelation. Someone else wants to share a prophecy. Isn't it ironic? The only music mentioned specifically in the assembly in the New Testament is solos, which I guarantee you are forbidden in churches that have the anti-instrument position. These passages are talking about our lifestyle. See, that's the second observation. What they're teaching is that what God cares about is the heart. Can I give you my personal opinion? I don't think God hears the voice. I don't think he hears the instrument. I think God hears the heart of the person who produces both. And that's why I believe even a deaf mute can make a joyful noise to the Lord. And finally, please notice, look at those passages again. Let them say what they say and don't make them say more than they say. There is no New Testament command to sing only a cappella. To say that sing means sing only is a human inference that comes dangerously close to speaking where God has not spoken Can we honestly say that the early Christians, especially in view of their knowledge of the Old Testament, would have concluded that sing means sing unaccompanied? We don't even use the word like that today. If I said to you, Everyone come out to my father-in-law's ranch and we're going to build a big fire tonight and we're going to roast weenies and marshmallows and we're going to sing songs. And you showed up and I pulled out my guitar and began to strum. Would you be offended and would you say, wait a second, you didn't say anything about a guitar. You said we were just going to sing songs. We don't use the word like that now. In view of what they knew about the Old Testament, we're to assume that's how they would have used the word. Please understand, nobody's arguing and nobody has ever argued that we should replace singing with playing. We're simply saying that the one does not preclude or forbid the other. Where is the specific word anywhere in the Bible that forbids what in the Old Testament is called with one voice the singing and playing of praise given to God? Reason number four, the New Testament refers to instrumental music in heaven. And I believe references to instrumental music in John's revelation give further evidence that instrumental music is pleasing to God. Look at these two verses with me, Revelation 5 verse 8. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. In Revelation 15 we read, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Did you notice that, please? They held harps given them by God. Now, in lieu of that, I found it amazing that in several of the books I read supporting the anti-instrument position, the argument was actually made. Please note it says they were holding harps. It doesn't say they were playing them. (laughs) What most will tend to do is say you can't take that literally. Revelation is images and revelation is apocalyptic literature and and it's, it's figurative. And I argue that whether it's literal or figurative is irrelevant. 
The revelation was written to a persecuted church dying for the faith. And these early Christians are wondering, is Jesus and the gospel worth hanging on to? And John says, here's, a, here's an image from heaven. Here's a spirit-given image for you to realize that the saints that died for the faith, the saints that are martyred for the faith, they're around the throne of God now, playing and singing his praise. You see that picture and you hold on to your faith. It served the eternal purpose of God for that figure to bless those Christians. Am I honestly to believe, by the way, that worship is going on right now, not later. Am I honestly to believe that what God is enjoying right now in heaven, he is despising on earth? And then finally, finally, I want you to notice the New Testament idea of giftedness supports the practice of instrumental praise. If God was honored by the sincere offerings of instrumentalists in the Old Testament, why would he not be now? Please, and I've heard this comment made. Please do not say that you can only praise God from the heart with the, with the voice and not with an instrument. That is an unkind and that is an untrue insult to all believing musicians. Playing an instrument to the glory of God is not just an aid to worship. It is an act of worship. Look again at the Old Testament, Psalm 150, verse 3. We saw, praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. 1 Chronicles 23, verse 5. 4,000 are to be gatekeepers and 4,000 are to praise the Lord with the musical instruments I've provided for that purpose. Go back to 2 Chronicles 30. Remember that phrase we saw earlier? They were accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Now, many a cappella churches now allow people with gifts in acting or in painting to bless the body. Why would we deny that same sweet privilege to our gifted musicians? I want to share with you an email I received last spring from one of the young women of this church. She grew up in this church. Many of you were her Bible school teachers. In regard to a Sunday morning sermon a few weeks back on worship, I'd like to encourage leadership to be able to overcome the fear of offering an alternative instrumental worship service. Not just for the sake of pushing an agenda or to force people into something they personally don't want, but to be an option for those who best connect with God and worship that way. Helping to lead worship once a month for the Young Family Saturday Night Praise. I have found a passion and depth to worship I've never found before and only want to help others find. If it's an a cappella service, that's fabulous. But if it's an instrumental service, that needs to be available here too. I believe this is what God has prepared in advance for me to do, as you mentioned yesterday. Now, I've loved the messages on being different yet unified in Christ. However, yesterday, while encouraging everyone to utilize their God-given gifts to serve the body... I heard if you're not blessing this body, you need to find one you can bless. Does that mean that you think that I and whoever else was gifted in this capacity should go somewhere else to attend? Even though we've been a body part here for years? Do you cut off your elbow and tell it to graft itself to another body? I know everyone wants to avoid offending anyone. But sometimes it's hard to hear messages about service and utilizing your God-given gifts when that's all you've ever wanted to to do but you just keep hitting roadblocks now i share you that email i've gotten dozens of emails like that the difference is this person has stayed i usually get this email from the family to explain why they've left i said last week why would we make it difficult for the unbeliever who's trying to find god But now I ask today, why would we make it difficult for our own members and our own kids who just want to serve God with their gifts? Now, we can argue at length about the meaning of solo, and I'll talk about that in a second. We can debate why early Christians may not have used instruments, and I will address that next week. We can quote church fathers ad infinitum, but the bottom line still remains. Listen close. The authority to forbid instrumental music has got to be established apart from a clear command of God. You can't open your Bible and show me where God forbids it.
In fact, I believe you'd be hard-pressed to prove the New Testament writers were even remotely concerned with the presence or the absence of instrumental music, and I think they would be appalled to learn how we have lifted their verses and made them say things that were never even remotely on their minds. I believe what was central to their message was the cross. That's why, for example, ordinances like baptism and communion are mentioned so prominently because baptism and communion tell the story of the cross. They visibly preach the gospel. That's why, for example, two things that will never change at this church is our commitment to the essentiality of baptism and the regular observance of the Lord's Supper. They preach the cross. But I don't think those things that referred to the cross came across the minds of the New Testament writers. That's why, for example... Probably the, the best written book to defend a cappella music in the last century was by Professor Everett Ferguson, a beautiful man who teaches at ACU. In his book, A Cappella Music and the Public Worship of the Church, he honestly admits on page 40 and 41, before leaving the New Testament references, we may note in passing the New Testament gives no negative judgment on instrumental music per se. The situation is simply instruments are not referred to when the church is worshipped. I would say yes. It was a non-issue. They're not spoken about positively. They're not spoken about negatively. They're not prescribed. They're not precluded. It wasn't an issue. It never dawned on them that it was an issue. Now, I think in fairness, I need to deal with the two most common arguments against accepting instrumental praise to God. The first is what is called often the solo argument. It's a common argument among a cappella only advocates to contend the meaning of solo, which was the word there in Colossians 3 or Ephesians 5, to sing. They say it changed by New Testament times. Now, I'll admit the original meaning of the word was to pluck and then to play a string instrument. And this was the dominant use of solo in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek. And it was the Bible of the first Christians. What they took around all over the world was the Septuagint, the Bible, the Old Testament, into Greek. And the dominant meaning of solo in in their Bible was to play or to pluck. But they argue that on the street by the first century, solo had evolved into include the idea of making music with the voice. And some contend it only meant that by the first century. And that's how Paul meant for it to be understood. Now, you can read articles about this until you are tired in the head. But I will just tell you, the bulk of scholarship disagrees. The word solo is clearly used to play an instrument by Josephus in the first century, by the Roman historian Suetonius in the second, by Chrysostom and Gregory of Nyssa as late as the fourth century. And it was clearly the meaning of the word in the Bible of the first Christians who would have known exactly what it meant to the authors of the text that they read and studied. Now, if the Holy Spirit's purpose was to forbid instrumental music, why did he use a word so commonly associated with it? Again, the problem is that we're trying to make sing mean sing only. We don't even use the word that way. We don't play that game with other New Testament words. When Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, does that mean take wine only? Would Timothy sin if he took wine and water? Maybe a better case, when when James says, is anyone sick? Let him call the elders so they can come and anoint him with oil and pray for him. Well, if you called someone beside the elders, if you called the elders and some deacons, if you called the elders and your parents, did you sin because you didn't call the elders only? We don't play that game with any other word in the New Testament. Why would we do it with this word? Is it any wonder the anti-instrument arguments seem contrived to all but those who are raised in an anti-instrument tradition and then probably the chief argument used to oppose worship of God with instruments is what I call the law of exclusion argument is sometimes called the argument from the silence of scripture the contention 
is that anything not specifically authorized in Scripture is forbidden. And therefore, as the argument goes, even though instrumental music was acceptable to God in the Old Testament, we have to assume God wiped the sake clean, and it's now unacceptable because God did not specifically reauthorize it. Now, you're probably thinking, but anti-instrument advocates do a lot of things the New Testament does not specifically authorize. Yes, they do. Yes, we do. We always have. We always will. Here's what we do. Through a convenient assortment of mental gymnastics, we find a way to allow whatever we like as an aid, and we forbid whatever we dislike as an unauthorized addition. It's a deeply flawed way to read the Bible. It is inherently inconsistent, and it's inevitably divisive, and I don't think there is a single reason for all of the splits and the division in the restoration movement more than this single reason. The same argument that someone will use to condemn this church for breaking the law of silence about instruments is the same argument we've used to split churches over Bible school, over having more than one cup, over having church buildings, over having located preachers, over whether or not you can support orphans from a church budget, and the list just goes on and on and on. Listen, silence in the New Testament on instrumental music is not intentional, it's incidental. It wasn't spoken about because it wasn't the issue that those writers were dealing with as they wrote to their churches. I believe silence in the Bible is neither inherently prescriptive or prohibitive. I don't believe just because the Bible is silent, you can do whatever you want. And I don't believe because the Bible is silent, you can't do anything. I believe when the Bible is silent on a question, you have to do good theology. You have to read the Bible and gain from it the principles necessary to help you make what you think is the most God-honoring decision. And by the way, one more thought. If it is a sin to worship God except as he has specifically told you to do, then Jesus violated the law of silence. Where, anywhere in the Bible, does God authorize a synagogue? Nowhere. Jesus went to synagogues. Where, anywhere in the Bible, does God authorize a feast of lights? That was started by the Maccabees in the intertestamental period. But in John chapter 10, Jesus went to the feast of lights. Where in the Bible does the Passover meal authorize using cups of wine? No, you go read it. You go read what God authorized in the Passover. He doesn't mention wine one time. You say, well, can't you just assume if you're having a meal, you're going to have something to drink? Yeah, just like you could probably assume if you're singing to God, you might play too. The point simply is this. Jesus did not allow his worship of God to be restricted by the very law that we've tried to bind on our brothers and sisters. I want to ask you this question. What great message of God did he ever communicate by saying nothing about it you parents think about this for a second if you punished your children for what you call disobedience over something you never talked about are you a good father a good mother if you get rebellious children, you get what you deserve. The Father in heaven makes it clear what he expects of us. And he does not communicate to us by saying nothing. See, that's my deeper problem with the anti-instrument position. And I want to close by talking about what I think are the real concerns we have. And please understand, folks... I have no desire to abolish a cappella praise or to convince anyone that prefers a cappella praise 
that they shouldn't. We do a cappella praise well here. We will continue to do so. It is a wonderful, beautiful way to praise God. There's nothing wrong with that. Never has been, never will be. But really, when you get right down to it, this elephant that has been in this room for decades is about something much bigger than whether or not we can worship with instruments. Here's two problems I have with the way we've handled this issue in the past. First is what it says about the Bible. Listen close. One of the best things about the origin of the restoration movement was the declaration of freedom from subjection to the deductions and the inferences made by men. I've always resonated with the idea that a simple and sincere student of Scripture could read and understand God's will. And I still do. That's why I must reject the anti-instrument position. No one not already indoctrinated would arrive at such a conclusion without someone teaching them to read the text through their particular interpretive grid. Let me say that again. Nobody who just sincerely read the Bible for the first time would ever reach the conclusion that instrumental praise was unacceptable to God unless you came after they had read the Bible and taught them to read the Bible your way. And that should concern us. I think it explains why the shift in movement on this question is almost entirely one way. How honest can we be this morning? We all know thousands and thousands of sincere members of Churches of Christ who have studied their Bible. And they no longer believe instrumental praise offends God. How many of our sincere God loving, Christ-honoring friends who grew up in churches with instruments have studied their Bibles and wound up with the anti-instrument position. I personally know hundreds of preachers who love the Word of God who can no longer teach the anti-instrument position because they love the Bible too much to do it. I don't know any preacher who studied himself out of the instrument position into the anti-instrument position. Most of our schools and churches of Christ don't even try to teach the anti-instrument doctrine anymore. Most of our pulpits of significance don't teach it. But here's our problem. We are creating a serious credibility gap because we don't even attempt any longer to defend from the Bible what we practice. If someone out in that atrium asked me, I saw that you baptized someone today. Why did you do that? I opened my Bible and showed them. And I saw that you shared what you called communion together. Why do you do that? I opened my Bible and I showed them. And I saw that you only sang a cappella. Why do you do that? I don't open my Bible. And this is going to have serious and foreboding consequences for our future and for our children. If we continue to tell them they must exclusively practice a form of praise, we will not open our Bibles to defend. And we'll discuss that more next week. I have a real problem with what it says about the Bible. I know I will be accused and this church will be accused of being soft on the Bible. I want to tell you from the depth of my heart, it's the exact opposite. My love for the Bible compels me to say what I've said this morning. I cannot in good conscience allow people to teach as Bible what the Bible doesn't teach. And then finally, my real problem is what it says about God. 
Because I think that's fundamental to this whole discussion. What do we believe about God? And so let me be honest. I do not believe God vacillates, liking one form of praise in one dispensation and disliking it in another. I do not believe that God so segregates life that what is acceptable in a car or at a wedding is not acceptable in a worship service. I do not believe God is going to hand you a harp after he has sent millions to hell for mistakenly playing one. And most of all, most of all, when I read in my Bible about a God that was so desperate to save me, the sacrifice of his own son was worth it to him. I cannot accept that my relationship to that God could be jeopardized because I didn't discern his, his inference or interpret his silence. A God that would love me so much he would die for me, would send me to hell because I didn't properly understand something he never spoke about? That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the cross. I believe God is passionately committed to saving a lost world. And he's deeply desirous for his church to get serious about doing that. And so next Sunday, we will talk about the relationship of this whole discussion to our effectiveness in mission. I want to thank you for your patience. I continue to be amazed and praise God for your spirit and your maturity. Now let me close by asking you one last question. Are we going to be driven by truth or by fear that we might have been wrong? God bless you all.